Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing in our series on the epistle of 1 John. Today's part four. We're going to look today at the themes of sin, confession, forgiveness, and the blood of Messiah. Hallelujah. So turn with me to 1 John 1, verses 5 through 10. And we have it on the overhead as well. If you could turn it, there we go. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, uh, we, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Yeshua, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word isn't in us. Amen. John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. In fact, we make God out to be a liar. Because his word clearly says, look at Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Uh, so so to, to embrace the gospel of God's salvation in Messiah, we must first start out by admitting and confessing uh, and turning from our sin. You must acknowledge that you are a moral failure. Only people who see that they're not worthy to enter into God's presence, that they need a mediator, a great high priest, to go in for them, only only those people can be saved. If you don't see that, if you don't see that, that in your sin you do not have a right to commune with God and have a relationship and fellowship with Him, then you haven't even reached first base. You are still in your sin and without hope. And most people relate to the scriptural truth typically by falling into one of two camps. Uh, Most people reject this teaching and don't consider themselves to be sinners. They don't see themselves as moral failures. They don't feel they're that bad. They don't feel they're wicked. They don't have this sense. So they don't see why they can't just go directly to God and pray to him, talk to him. They say, I've tried my best. I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm not perfect. But I have a right to go into God's presence and then to stand before him. So they don't have anywhere near the sense of God's holiness and righteousness and the fear of the Lord that they need to have, according to John. And then others, in contrast, have an overwhelming sense of their guilt and inadequacy, and they're crushed under it. Uh, They can't even lift their eyes under the Lord. Uh, You cower before him uh, and avoid him out of fear. Most people tend to fall into one of these two camps, uh, but the majority tend to be in the first category. Most people say, I don't feel that I'm such a rotten sinner. Uh, I know the Bible does teach this. I know that Chaim teaches this, but that's really outmoded uh, in this day and age. Uh, we're more enlightened now. We, we modern people, we just don't believe that anymore. I don't have a sense of that at all. Uh, I don't feel that way. I don't see it that way. But what does the Bible say? 1 John 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, 
and the truth is not in us. John says, beware. Uh, You, by nature, won't want to admit that you're a sinner. He says, it's natural to deceive yourself uh, and to live uh, live this lie, live in denial. Uh, It's natural to hide yourself from how self-centered you really are. It's natural to hide yourself uh, from your own evil uh, and wickedness and depravity. You won't see it. You will repress it. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago uh, where a woman uh, killed her children, uh, her own children, in a small town in South Carolina. Uh, And the neighbors and the townspeople were all interviewed uh, in the news story. And they said things like this. We'll put it on the overhead. This is what the townspeople said. They said, she came from a good family. I know her people. I sat with her in church. She praised the Lord. How could she do such a thing? I can't believe it. And what they mean is, she's just like me. She's my kind of people. Uh, I went to school with her. Uh, I went to church with her. And I don't believe that I could ever do anything like that. And the reason they're so shattered, the reason they're so disillusioned, the reason they're so amazed is because they really don't believe what the Scriptures say about the radical nature of our sin. These people may be religious. They may go to church or synagogue. Uh, They may consider themselves believers. But they're not reading their Bible. And therefore, they're shattered and disillusioned and shocked uh, when an outwardly good person reveals the sin within them. The truth is, we're capable of all sorts of things. And yet most people say, this woman who, who killed her children, she was sick, she was deranged, she was the exception, uh, she's a monster. I don't feel like I'm that kind of sinner at all. Famous 19th century British uh, preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, has a wonderful illustration that, that explains all of this. He says, look at an acorn. Uh, what do you see in that acorn? He says, I know it doesn't seem to be true, but when you look at an acorn, you see in there a whole ocean of wood. He says, first of all, inside the acorn is a tree, uh, a huge oak tree. And every bit of that huge oak tree is in that little acorn, albeit all scrunched up. An entire tree is all in there, inside the acorn. Uh, There's not one thing in that huge tree that's going to come out of that acorn that's not already in it, in in substance, whether you can see it or not. Uh, And not not only that, but but on that tree, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of other acorns. And each acorn is, of course, another tree, which means that inside that one acorn, it's not only a tree, but thousands of other trees. And each of them has enough acorns to produce thousands of other trees, and on and on and on. And therefore, one acorn has enough power and potential within it to cover the whole world in an ocean of wood. But then he goes on to say, if that acorn falls on the pavement instead of on on fertile ground, uh, within a couple of days, it rots, and its power goes to naught. Uh, It doesn't mean the power is not there, but, but to actually see the power, it has to fall into, into good soil. It has to be watered. It has to have sunlight. Now in the overhead, what do you think murder is? What do you think it starts with? It starts with a thought. I wish that person wasn't here. I don't like that person. It starts with a grudge. It starts with selfishness. 
It starts with pride. It starts with self-centeredness. What do you think that is? In your heart, in the acorn cup of your heart, there's an ocean of evil. And if that evil potential just so happens, by God's grace, to fall on the pavement, if you happen, by God's grace, never to be in a situation where the evil is being fertilized and watered, if by God's grace, then you can't see how much evil is in there, it doesn't mean it's not there. Now, if even after this explanation, you still say, I don't see myself as evil or wicked. I don't see myself as capable of murder or, or adultery or, or extortion or larceny or any of these other terrible things. Then you are in serious denial. You don't know your own heart. Indeed, the truth is, you actually never learn you're a sinner just by being told. You learn you're a sinner by being shown. And someday, someplace, you may find yourself in a situation it was the only way to explain the way you're acting or the way you're relating is by understanding the biblical doctrine of sin. Unless you believe in the doctrine of original sin, uh, in your fallen nature, uh, your radical depravity of, of your heart, just wait. Just wait until it comes out in your life at a time when you least expect it. So John says again, 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth's not in us. Indeed, on the overhead. Indeed, the test of whether you're a real born-again believer, the test of whether you have fellowship with God, the test of whether you understand the gospel, or whether you're just a nice person, a religious person, a moral person, but not a true Yeshua follower, is how you experience and understand sin, the biblical doctrine of your own inherent sin nature. A moralist which means a moral religious person, is someone who gets their spiritual confidence out of their own performance. You get your confidence out of your performance. You say, yes, I know God loves me because I'm better than most, and I try my best. I give my life to obey God's law. I come to shul. I tithe my money. I work hard to be good. I follow the Ten Commandments. I'm even Torah observant. On the overhead, if you're a moralist, your confidence is based on your own performance. And as a result, your understanding of God's love is based on your performance. On the overhead, in contrast, a messianic believer is someone whose confidence is based solely on Messiah's performance. Not yours, but his. A messianic believer is someone who says, the only reason God accepts me is because of what Yeshua has done for me. Because of his performance, not mine. Now, the problem is that uh, a true believer and a moralist, uh, a person who has embraced the gospel uh, and a nice, decent, religious person, they'll both come to shul and they'll both look from the outside almost the same. They're both trying to be good. They both believe what the Bible teaches in general. They both respect and honor Yeshua. They both pray, they both tithe, they both serve, uh, they both uh, do good works uh, and volunteer for ministry. They both try to live good lives on the overhead. So how do you know the difference? Here's how. John says you can tell the difference because if you are a true believer, uh, then recognizing your sin, 
confessing of your sin, repenting of your sin, what does it do? It brings you joy and fellowship with God. It brings you into the light. But if you're a moralist, a religious person, then new discoveries of your sin devastates you. Uh, it, it, It leaves you devastated. For a moralistic person, when you see that you're a worse sinner than you thought you were, you become less appreciative of God's love for you. You don't you, you, you doubt his love for you. You say, how could he possibly love me after I did that? But if you're a true Messianic believer and you've got new discoveries of your sin, you see new depths of your own selfishness. Of course, that's upsetting and it's frustrating, but you say, what Yeshua did for me on the cross is even greater than I thought. You get a greater appreciation of God's love for you. And the overhead. If you're a religious moralist, when you see that you're a much more wicked person than you thought you were, you never want to see God again. <laughs> you leave him. You run away. You don't want to be in his presence on the overhead. But if you're a Yeshua follower, when you see that you are a more wicked sinner than you thought, you fly to him. Amen. On the overhead, again, it's not, until, it's not going to be until the last day when you see how holy He really is. And you see how wicked you really are. You really have fullness of joy if you are a believer. Because not until you see the size of your debt, will you know the size of the payment that he made on your behalf. Not until you see the size of the problem, will you see the size of the solution on the overhead. Not until you see just how much in debt you are, will you ever appreciate the incredible riches that have been put into your account. The way you respond to sin tells you whether you are a Yeshua follower or just a religious moralist. So on the overhead, John says, we walk in darkness, that's verse 6. So we have sin, that's verse 8, and therefore we do sin, that's verse 10. On the overhead, again, these are are three aspects uh, of the doctrine of sin. Sin is more than just your actions. Sin is your nature, ultimately. You have the nature of sin within you, is what John is saying. You have sin, you have sin, verse 8. You have the nature within you, and therefore, verse 10, you do sin. There's a sin nature, a selfishness, a pride in you and in me. Walking in darkness, verse 6, is more than just a bunch of deeds. It's an entire outlook when you walk in the darkness. It's your entire mindset. Uh, It's a whole outlook uh, and and worldview and an internal operating principle. It's an outlook that only thinks of God when you have a need. When there's a problem, then you say, God, get me out of this. (laughs) And God, why did you get me into this in the first place? But you think of God in terms of what he can do for you and what he can give you. Your sin nature has a whole outlook. And if you're a real, but if you're a real born-again believer, you understand the depths of your own sin. It's a mindset, uh, a nature. It's not simply a particular violation of specific rules and regulations. And until you understand that, you will never understand the joy of the Lord, the joy of fellowship with him, the joy of a sinner saved by grace. And the last part of this passage says that although you were a sinner, Yeshua's blood cleanses you from all sin. It's only the blood of Yeshua that makes it possible for you to get the joy from seeing God's holiness and seeing your own sin. 
You cannot know God's light unless you know Messiah's blood. And you can't know Messiah's blood unless you know God's light. You can't appreciate God's light. It'll crush you unless you appropriate Messiah's blood in your life through faith. And you can't be moved and, and melted by Messiah's blood unless you see God's light. You see his holiness. And then in contrast, see your own sin. They work together. Now, if you take the blood of Messiah into your life, John says you will walk in the light. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light? Woody Hayes, famous Ohio State football coach, uh, said the reason that Ohio State is, is a running team and didn't do much passing is because when you pass the ball, only three things can happen, and two of them are bad. <laughs> the, the ball can be caught, that's good, or it can be dropped, or it can be intercepted. <laughs> So if these three things can happen and two of them are bad, he says, that's why I don't pass much. (laughs) Now, in all other religions, when you're tempted, there are three things that can happen and two of them are bad. Uh, You can obey. That's good. Uh, You can fail and and, and repent, but you still disobeyed. You've still fallen short. Uh, The only way to to be saved in in all other religions is is to be good, uh, to be obedient. In fact, just last week I was listening to a YouTube video uh, where a young Orthodox Jewish man said that uh, he'd go to heaven if he was basically a good person, if his good deeds outweighed his bad deeds. That was his understanding of rabbinic Judaism. And, of course, the third option is to, is to sin and, and not repent at all. So in all other religions, you can obey, you can sin and repent, but you're, you still, you're still, you have bad deeds, still have, good deeds still have to outweigh your bad deeds, or you can, uh, or you can uh, sin and not repent. And two of those three are bad. And the third one, uh, to obey, is something that no one does 100% of the time. We all sin. And John says, if you deny it, you're a liar. And the truth's not in you. Now, in contrast, uh, in Messianic Judaism, in Yeshua faith, there's also three options, but two of them are good. <laughs> because you walk in the light by using the blood of Messiah. And no other religion on the face of the earth has the blood of Messiah. And the blood of Messiah cleanses you if you repent. The blood of Messiah, first of all, it helps you to resist temptation in the first place. helps to keep you in obedience. And if you use and apply the blood of Messiah as you're walking through your day, it will help keep you obedient. How? Because the cross is the number one incentive for obedience. You look at the cross. You see Yeshua dying. You know why he died? 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So I look at Yeshua's blood. And you know what his blood says to me? You know what Yeshua says to you from the cross? Think of him hanging from the cross speaking to you. If you think about it, when you're tempted, should I disobey? uh, or Or should I do what the Lord wants me to do? Think of Yeshua explaining how your sins have nailed him to that cross. Are you now going to keep crucifying him over and over and over again by continuing to willfully sin, by making light of his sacrifice? But how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 10, 26 says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment 
and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who has rejected the law of Moses, the Torah, die without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more, Kovar Homer, how much more severely do you, th- oh, do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy, and it is an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, who's insulted the spirit of grace on the overhead. Yeshua is saying to you today, I died on the tree so that you can be free from sin. Don't keep on walking in darkness. Don't keep on nailing me to the cross. Don't treat as unholy the blood of the covenant. My blood shed for you on the overhead. Now, when you do disobey, you don't think of it like that, do you? That's why you disobey. You're not using the blood of Messiah to keep you walking in the light. When you're about to sin, you don't think, I'm slamming a shoe into the floor. I'm choking him. Uh, I'm thrusting a, a spear into his side. I'm driving in another nail. I'm trampling on his blood. You don't think like that, do you? Instead, you say that what? You say, I can't help it. Uh, I love to sin. <laughs> I'm unhappy. Uh, I deserve a break. Uh, I desire this. I lust for this. Uh, I can't say no. Poor me. God will forgive me. That's his job. And you don't think of the blood of Messiah. You don't realize you're trampling on his blood. And that's why you keep on sinning. The blood of Messiah destroys the attractive power of sin over your life. You look at it and you say, here's Yeshua agonizing in unimaginable pain under the Roman whip. He's sweating blood in the garden. He's slowly dying on the cross. The crown of thorns is digging into his forehead. Nails driven through his hands and feet. Losing blood. Unable to breathe. A spear thrust into his side. All for you and for me. All for you and for you and for you and for you and for me. This is what he has endured for you, even on a purely physical level. Not to mention the far greater spiritual suffering of bearing our sins. Now, how are we going to respond? He's calling you to a life of obedience and holiness and purity and love and the fear of the Lord. The blood of Messiah keeps you in the light by keeping you obedient. Uh, And and the ultimate incentive for obedience should not be a fear that you'll lose his love, but one of gratitude. It should be a fear of grieving him. Uh, and a sense of, after all Messiah has done for me, how can I do this to him? How can I trample on his love? If the spirit of Messiah lives within me, how can I let him witness and experience all these sinful deeds I'm tempted with? Because he sees it all. Everything you do, he sees. So ask yourself, what am I subjecting him to that he is witnessing within me? Because the Holy Spirit lives within me if I'm a believer. He helps me not to defile. You cry out, Lord, help me not to defile or to stain your presence within me or subject you to my sin and carnal- or carnality. But help me to walk in holiness uh, uh, and to honor you in my daily life. But this is the incredible thing about the blood and, and then the cross of Messiah, that if you do sin, 
Here is the cure and the atonement and the cleansing. If you're about to sin, the Lord of Messiah says, how can you do this to me? And, if you're, and, if the, and, and this is the only motive that will actually melt your heart and change your life. There is no greater or more natural or organic or, or wonderful incentive to obedience. But at the same time, if you have sinned, here is the solution and the forgiveness and the restoration. What kept Yeshua on the cross? Because he could have called 12 legions of angels any time to, to, to um, rescue him. What kept him there? Uh, the nails, the chains, the cords? No. His love for you kept him there. His love for you was so strong, he was willing to endure hell itself being poured out on him and the wrath of God being poured out on him. He was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath and judgment to the dregs, to the bottom for you and for you and for you and for me. Now, if Yeshua bore all of that, he can also bear your own inconsistency. Your sins, your coldness, your failures. If you go to him in repentance and seek his forgiveness and mercy and grace. If today you are crushed under guilt. If you say, I've done it again. (laughs) How could God forgive me? Then you don't understand God's love in Yeshua. The very same blood that keeps you from sinning restores you when you do. This is the medicine for any disease whether it's temptation before sin or accusation after sin, the blood of Messiah enables you to walk in the light. If you're being tempted, the blood of Yeshua, it will keep you straight if you heed its message. But if you're fallen, the blood of Yeshua cleanses you. It restores you. The only thing that will destroy you is if you sin and and, and not uh, go to the blood. There are three things that can happen. Uh, You can obey because of the blood. Uh, you can sin and repent uh, through the blood, or, of course, and this is the only, only thing that, can, that will ever destroy you, you can sin and refuse to repent. You can defy the Lord and trample his blood. But if you humble yourself and you repent and you turn from your sin and you turn from yourself and you turn to him, to Yeshua, then you, ha- then you can have restoration uh, and relationship with the Lord and peace with God and, and, and intimate, eternal fellowship with him and his kingdom. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. You today can walk in the light. You can resist sin. You can resist the flesh. You can resist the devil. You can be free of the enslavement of iniquity through Yeshua's blood. The blood of Messiah cleanses you from your sin and enables you to walk in the light. So what does this mean in practice? First, you cannot claim to be, claim to be walking in the light unless you first have repented. But it doesn't stop just at that. That's just the initial step. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? In his desperation, he comes to his senses. He says, I'll arise. I'll go to my father. He gets up. He goes to him. He changes his whole realm and position. You must do likewise. So walking in the light includes positive living, uh, walking in holiness. It does not stop just at repentance. It doesn't stop just at acknowledging uh, your your awareness of your sin. It means a positive endeavor to live in a a manner worthy of, 
of one who's been translated into the kingdom of Yeshua, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the, of the Son of God. Indeed, we read this. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We're saved by faith, yes. But how do I know if I have true saving faith? There's only one proof that I've really, see, that, uh, that, that I've really seen the truth. Uh, one ultimate proof of the fact that I do have saving faith. That my eyes haven't opened to the gospel. That having seen myself as a condemned sinner, I have forsaken sin, I have repented, and I'm striving with all my might to walk in the light, as he is in the light. In other words, throughout the epistle of 1 John, John is testing your profession of faith. He's saying, it's no use saying I believe and then living like the devil. It's no use confessing belief and then living as if you don't believe. It's no use saying, yes, I believe I'm a sinner and I'm saved by the blood of Messiah, and only the blood of Messiah can save me, but then continuing to live in your old way of life as if Messiah did nothing to change you and his blood had no effect. If you're truly saved, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And if the Holy Spirit lives within you, he makes you into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone be in Messiah, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. The work of the Holy Spirit is one word, regeneration. He makes you into a new creation. He regenerates you. And therefore, the proof of your repentance is the new life that you, knew, that you now live. There's no value in a supposed faith that does not lead to action. Look at James 2, 24. You say a person is considered righteous by what they do, you see, says, not by faith alone. James 2.17, faith by itself without action is dead. James 2.26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. On the overhead, we need a living faith, not a dead faith. Faith and deeds are inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. Because my deeds, my changed life, prove and demonstrate my faith. This is the way to test the difference between mere intellectual assent to the gospel and true saving faith. There are many people who accept the teaching of the Bible uh, as maybe some kind of philosophy. But they don't live it. It doesn't change their life. The Pharisees are a perfect example of this. And if this is you, you are not a believer. You're not walking in the light. On the overhead, your acts prove what faith you have. Walking in the light means repentance and turning from sin and carnality to holiness and, and purity and righteousness. John says these are the ultimate proofs of the genuineness of your faith. So this is the first thing John emphasizes here. That you must walk in the light as Yeshua himself is in the light. Everyone who's a true follower of Yeshua is walking in the light and not in the darkness. And then second, John here emphasizes the importance of confession of sin. Again, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. On the overhead, why if you refuse to confess your sins, why does this break and interrupt your fellowship with God? Several reasons. 
the light always reveals the hidden things of the darkness. So if you refuse to face your sins, it means you're avoiding the light. You're concealing and refusing to face something, and that's breaking your fellowship with God. This is because God is light. And if you're hiding in the darkness, you're out of fellowship with him. To not confess your sins means you're resisting the Holy Spirit, for it's the work of the Spirit to bring your hidden sins to the light and to convict you and to lead you to forsake them. Second, you must recognize your sins in particular when you confess them. And this is a painful process. To confess your sins doesn't just mean to say in general, well, yes, I'm a sinner. I admit it. I never claim to be perfect. No. You must confess them in detail. You must confess your particular sins. You must name them one by one. You must not gloss over them or attempt to deny them. You must confess them and look at them and renounce them. Don't try to dismiss them as soon as possible. Confession means facing them. Let the light of God search you and convict you and show you your wretchedness. And honestly, face the things you have said, and you have done, and you have thought, and you have desired. Confess to the Lord in specific detail. Ask him to cleanse you one by one by his blood. When you walk in the light, your sins are brought to the surface. In fact, you may even sense this when you come in contact with some very saintly, very godly man or woman. You become, all of a sudden, you become conscious of your own defects, your own sins and imperfections. Not because they're trying to draw attention to them, no. But rather, the effect of their godliness brings these things to the surface, and you become conscious of them. Now, thank you. Now I want you to multiply that by infinity. And there you find yourself in the presence of God. The presence of God at once convicts us of sin. In other words, as we have fellowship with God, as as we walk with him in the light, we experience what what Peter experienced when he witnessed the miracles of others, a great catch of fish in the Gospels. Remember, he had caught nothing all night. Yeshua tells him, cast the net on the other side. Immediately, he catches so many fish, his net is about to break. (laughs) What was Peter's reaction? Look at Luke 5, verse 8. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Peter saw something of the glory of God in Yeshua, who is the incarnation of the Lord of glory. And immediately, Peter's reaction was, depart from me, Lord. Uh, I'm not fit to be in your presence, for I'm a sinful man. This is what happens when you are truly in God's presence. So what do we do? John tells us two things here. First, first John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua the Messiah, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then again, one more time, 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Note how John emphasizes it's the blood of Yeshua that cleanses you from sin. And the Lord is faithful and he's just to forgive you as you confess your sins and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. It all comes down in the last analysis to the supreme worth of Yeshua and living for him. So let me close with a, with a story. A story of a famous painter 
uh, and his son. Uh, World War I occurs, and the son goes off to war. The father hears nothing from him. After the war, all he knows is his son has died. One day, uh, there's a knock on the door, a young soldier standing there. The soldier says to the father, I was with your son uh, in the trenches, and he actually died for me. Uh, He jumped in front of a bullet. And also, he was a great artist, just like you. He was always drawing. Uh, I couldn't draw at all, but he would always be trying to teach me. Now, I know it's not very good, but I actually drew a picture of your son. I just want to give it to you. The father looked at it. Indeed, it was was not a very good drawing, very one-dimensional. But the father says, thank you so much. You have no idea how much this means to me. Now, eventually, the years go on, and the father dies. He was this famous artist, so everyone wanted to attend his estate auction, uh, where all his paintings would be auctioned off. The auctioneer, he begins the auction by opening up a piece of paper, uh, saying, uh, before we start the main auction, there's one special drawing to be auctioned off. And it was the young soldier's picture uh, of the sun. And everyone looked at it, started laughing. <laughs> they said, this is a joke. You get rid of this, you know, this, this trash picture. Uh, we didn't travel all this way to look at this horrible excuse for a drawing. Well, the young soldier who drew the picture was sitting there in the auction. And the auctioneer begins by saying, who'll give me $1,000? Everybody laughs. Uh, who'll give me 2000 Everyone laughs even louder. Says, come on, let's get on to the real thing, the real auction. But the young soldier, he stands up. And he says, all I have is one month's pay. That's all I have. But please, let me buy that picture. Because it's the picture of the son, the one who died for me. And the auctioneer says, sold. They hand him the picture. And the auctioneer, he slams the hammer down uh, on the podium. And he says, the auction's over. And the crowd starts yelling. What do you mean the auction's over? It hasn't even started yet. And the auctioneer opens an envelope. And he pulls out uh, the will. The last will and testament of the father. And it says, The one who takes my son gets it all. And that's God's word to you today. That is the gospel. The one who takes the son gets it all. Yeshua is everything. Make him that in your life. Amen. I stand and pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you. Hallelujah. We thank you on this word you've given us today on sin and confession and and then the blood of Messiah. We acknowledge, Lord, yes, we are sinful from birth. We admit, Lord, we do have a sin nature. We only do sins because we have sin. as an operating principle within us. It's, it's like an acorn, an acorn cup uh, within our hearts, Lord. Uh, this, this sin, that's, the potential that, that's buried within us in the little seed, in the acorn cup of our heart. It's only, Lord, by your mercy and by your grace that that acorn falls on pavement and doesn't germinate and grow into this huge tree of, of, of wickedness. We thank you, Lord, by the blood of Yeshua. We now have a new nature. We're new creations, Lord, in you. We are, we are born again from above. By your spirit, you regenerate us. You transform us. 
Lord, help us to renounce the darkness and to walk in the light, the light of holiness and purity uh, and godliness uh, and life in Messiah Yeshua. And Lord, we know the proof of our repentance is the new life we now live. So Lord Yeshua, I confess that my confidence before God is not based on my performance, Lord, but based solely on yours, Yeshua, (laughs) on your performance, for what you did for me on the cross. This is my confession on your death and your resurrection. And so when I see the depth of my sin, Lord, I fly to you, Yeshua. I fly because you are my only hope. Thank you for your promise that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and you're just to forgive them and to cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. So Yeshua, today my prayer is this, cleanse me, purge me, purify me. Though my sins are as scarlet, make them white as snow. Hallelujah. And your forgiveness and your atonement and your blood through your finished work on the tree, I can now have fullness of joy. The joy of a sinner saved by grace. For you, Yeshua, are everything to me. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.